Good morning. Good morning. Wow, I feel more powerful. Okay. I don't know what it is about that amplified voice. It just kind of gets me excited. I'm going to preach for a long time. I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize ahead of time. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, let's just do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 6, and we'll finish out the chapter. So not as many verses as last week, but we are still talking about giving. And we're reaching probably one of the more famous texts of text, Texas. What is a Texas? I don't know what a Texas is. I've had too much coffee. I don't know. It's a, not Texas, but Texas. Texas. Maybe some people say it that way. Text. There we go. Text. Plural texts. That just feels wrong still. Okay. At least I'm not listening. Maybe I 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. We're getting into the popular text, which is God loves a cheerful giver. So just for opening, I'm going to start with that phrase and just as an introduction. And then I want to walk through why the text says what it says. Really, another way to think about it is how we can get to this point. There's a reason we don't like talking about giving. And that's because 90% of the time when we give, it's just not cheerful. This is like the opposite of how we actually feel. We know God loves a cheerful giver, and it's like, well, I guess he doesn't love me. Because here I am, I know I'm supposed to give. Have you ever given for no other reason than you felt guilty not to give? I'm not going to hold up to that, not up here, because God loves a cheerful giver. You know what I'm talking about, though. We have this feeling, and the reason we don't want to listen to a long sermon about giving is because we know at some point I'm going to feel guilty, because I know that my giving and my theology don't necessarily line up, and I'm going to feel bad that I didn't give to this. And and we all hate it when we pull up. You know, if you go to the the on-ramp or off-ramp, at one of the intersections, especially in Moss Point, I mean, that one's well worked. There's always a sign, and it's like, how clever can they get? And then we're going through, oh, they probably don't really need the money anyway. This is probably a drug habit. This is probably someone faking. We start to come in, and then we feel guilty because we didn't, and we wonder if we should have, and we just have this tension and turmoil about whether or not to give in those scenarios. Or someone asks you for money on a regular basis, and you just have this guilt. And what Paul is trying to set up here is this idea that the chief motivation isn't guilt. It's that you legitimately enjoy giving. God loves a cheerful giver. That's literally how it's worded in English. And we can get super nerdy on the Greek here and find out that it means exactly the same thing. In fact, you probably know every Greek word in that sentence. God, theos, theology, or the name theo, loves. You probably know which Greek word this is. Agape, this is agape. God loves Cheerful is hilarious, hilarious, giver dote, giver doted on someone. God loves a cheerful giver. All of those fancy Greek words just tell us that there's nothing mystical about that sentence. It just means exactly what it says in English. God loves a cheerful giver. God agape loves a cheerful giver. Now, the first maybe question we might ask when we hear a statement like that as we could retort with maybe this, well, I thought God loved this, you know, unconditionally. And that definitely sounds like a condition. God loves a cheerful giver. Well, does he love me if I'm not a cheerful giver? What do you think the answer is? Does God love you if you're a 
horrible giver and you hate giving and you cry and whine about giving. Does God still love you? Well, he does, right? That's the whole point of the gospel. And Scott says it this way all the time. You know, God loves me even though I am me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, Scott. Um, But I'm talking about myself, not Scott, when I say it. God loves us in spite of who we are. We recognize this is the basic tenet of the gospel. When we went through Romans years and years and years ago, we're going to have to go through Romans again. Uh, just to reemphasize the depression that the first seven chapters of that book calls. There's none righteous, no, not one. Um, it's while we were sinners that Christ demonstrated his love and gave his life for us. While we were the ungodly, while we were the weak, while we were the enemy, it's in that state of what we might call unlovable that God is loving us. God loves us as sinners. This is the basic element of the gospel. We call it justification by faith. We're going to emphasize that a lot when we get to Reformation Month and talk about the five solas. They're all based around this idea that God loves us in in spite of or over our sin. We don't deserve the love that he pours out on us. We're justified by our faith in him, not our deeds before him. And so we can't make him love us. He loves us out of his own character. It's completely unconditional. This is the basics of the gospel. You worthless sinner. Read Romans chapter 3. It's not going to do a lot for your self-esteem, at least in the first half. Because there's none righteous. No, no. We all deserve God's wrath. And you probably know Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our natural state. But it's in that state that God demonstrates his love since Christ to the cross to be crucified, to bear the weight of sin in our place, to redeem all those who are his, raises from the dead, grants us new life in Christ, demonstrating once and for all that his love is unshakable. His love is steadfast. That love he wanted in the Old Testament. Remember Hosea, the people repent, and Hosea's response is quoting God as a messenger says, your repentance is pathetic. It's like that morning cloud that bells to rain. It's like that dry riverbed. You try to go get water and it's dry. It's here in the morning and it's gone in the afternoon. That's not what I want. I want steadfast love. I don't want on and off again love. I want steadfast love. Well, what kind of love is that? That's it's God's love. He wants from us the same sort of love that he gives to us, which is the point here is he gives us steadfast, consistent, faithful, forever love, which is why Romans chapter 8, the big climax of the, you don't deserve any of this, but God gives it to you by grace, the climax is nothing can separate us from the what of God? The love. That's the point. God loves us unconditionally. But then we have a passage like 2 Corinthians 9, and the actual verse is at the end of 8, for God loves a cheerful giver, and Paul is not introducing some new idea where he kind of loves you unconditionally, but there actually are some conditions. That's, that's not what's going on with the Apostle Paul. This is above and beyond. If you have children, you can love your children unconditionally. But your children can do things that particularly delight you, make you happy. It's just, I love my children whether they do well or do poorly. They're my children. I love them. They will receive my love unconditionally, good or bad. But when they demonstrate good character, 
when they help out around the house or when I see them self-initiate something that I would have told them to do, but they do it on their own. I see them developing maturity and responsibility or love between them where they're working well together as a unit and they love each other and they're not fighting. They reconcile their differences without my input. Those things, when I see them, they give me a particular kind of delight. It doesn't make me love them, but I do have a particular enjoyment, delight in, love of those specific things. In fact, there's a lot of passages, especially in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians says in chapter 5 that we need to seek to discern what pleases the Lord. We want to know what these things are. He loves us enough to die for us, enough to redeem us, adopt us into his family. But we can act and live in such a way that grieves him, or we can act and live in such a way that delights him. Just imagine the, the beauty of that, that our God can be delighted by what we do. I can have a special enjoyment, excitement in what we do. And this text very explicitly says that God loves a cheerful giver. When you give in that happy, glad, participate sort of way, that delights God. How amazing is it that we know there's something we can do that will make God happy. Now, we all know the biggest thing here is, well, do you just go home and flip the switch then? You know what? I'm just going to be happy when I give now. That might work for one day, but it won't work for a week. Because by the end of the week, it turns out you actually really like the things you were using that money for. And since you gave that money, and now you don't get those things, now you're not as cheerful as you thought you were at the beginning of the week when you gave it. You know what I'm saying. Just those mental decisions, I'm just going to be a better person. I'm just going to be happy. Positive thinking, anybody into positive thinking? Positive thinking really does help. It matters, but have you tried that? That's hard. You know why it's hard? Because the world is negative, and we live in a negative world. We live in a world where our heart idolatries don't enjoy giving to the Lord. They enjoy giving to the things we worship. And so rather than just condemning ourselves here for not being cheerful givers or giving some vague, just go home and do better, love giving, let's talk about why someone would even be a cheerful giver. What could possibly happen in your mind, in your experience, in your daily activities that actually leads you to enjoy this? I don't enjoy running a marathon, but I might enjoy being healthier. And if we can connect those together, I might enjoy the, the work involved. So how can we take that sort of idea and apply it to being a cheerful giver, making my heart cheerfully give? And that's what Paul's really giving here. This is the climax of, of his argument. I'm glad he ends with this, because at some points it feels like he's just using peer pressure. But in the end, this is the most important aspect of giving Paul has to talk about. And it's going to be on the heart level. So let's dive in. Second Corinthians Chapter 9, picking up in verse 6. I love how Paul says this. The point is this. You ever felt like you had to say that? You're just talking around in a sermon. All right, what I'm trying to say, here's my main idea. Well, Paul's been talking for two chapters now. And finally, all right, here's what I'm trying to say. Here's the point. And he's, remember, he's encouraging them to give, not just in general, but to this specific offering he's trying to collect. Remember, just a quick recap. He wants to collect an offering from Gentile Christians to give to the persecuted 
Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. What's he hoping will happen if this offering takes place? Unity. He's just trying to bring these two branches together. This is the main area of disunity in the early church. Gentile Christians who eat pork, Jewish Christians who don't. It's more than that, but just for simplicity's sake. Cultural distinctions between these two groups make it hard for them to hang out together. And so Paul's trying to get them together. Then he made an appeal to the poorer Macedonian church, saying, man, the church in Corinth, the churches in Greece, they're they're really stepping up. They're, They're giving to this offering. But he's collecting the Macedonian offering first, and he writes the letter ahead of time saying, I told those guys you were going to give a lot. So, you know, when I get there, um, it would kind of look bad if you didn't. That's the basic argument so far. But now he says, but really, here's the real point. Here's the real point of my argument about how your giving should be. Now, follow how he makes this argument. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's a very simple metaphor. Sowing then is a reference to planting seed. If you plant one corn seed, now you might get a lot of seeds in return, but how many stalks of corn do you get? Just the one. If you want a lot of corn, very simple, basic cause and effect relationship here. How do you get a lot of corn? You plant a lot of seeds. Got to put more seeds in the ground. It grows exponentially. You put a few seeds in, you only get a few seeds out. You put a bunch of seeds in, you get a lot of seeds out. You get a lot of fruit out. This is Paul's basic metaphor. Now, in this case, planting the seeds is directly a reference to what action? In this case, it's the giving. You give to this offering. You're sowing. Now, this is where prosperity teachers like to go. Because if you sow into this ministry, God's going to reap a bountiful harvest in your life. So here's the deal. They're not completely wrong. This is a biblical teaching. This idea of you reap what you sow is definitely what Paul's talking about. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, verse 7, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that the harvesting, sorry, sorry, <laughs> I got agriculture in my brain, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, a transition happened in this thought there. If we miss it, we'll go down the prosperity gospel track. If we get it right, we'll go down the Christianity track. Now, in Christianity, there is a cause and effect relationship between what you pour in and what you get back. But here's where we make our misstep. And the prosperity framework, you hear me use this language all the time, there's something called the prosperity gospel, basically teaches, and they wouldn't word it this way, but in some way the message says, here's how you can force God's hand. Here's how you can make God do something specific for you. And we say it like this, if you sow, if you give money to the church, if you give money to the kingdom, then you guarantee that you'll never deal with bankruptcy. You guarantee that you'll always have a stable income. You guarantee that you're going to have a house. It's not always true. Can we make that claim biblically? I mean, Stephen, first martyr of the church, do you think he was faithful in any of these categories? 
How'd that work out for him? Martyrdom. John the Baptist, we're told explicitly, most righteous man that ever lived. Of course, we're excluding Jesus from the comparison. John the Baptist, most righteous man who ever lived. How'd that work out for him? He was also killed for really stupid reasons. There's no direct correlation in the Bible between you doing something and God being obligated to bless you. But there is a direct connection between you pouring into God's kingdom and God pouring out blessing on you. Now, it could be now, but it is guaranteed later. This is the biblical principle. It's very important. Don't store up treasures on earth. Store them up where? In heaven. Future coming kingdom of God. This aspect of the prosperity gospel is true. You can guarantee if you invest in the kingdom that future bountiful harvest is coming back. Now, it does not mean, however, that we're going to be different levels of millionaires in heaven. Different quantities of money. Heaven economy is going to work a very different way. That's not what we're talking about. There's this idea of blessing. There's this idea of glory. This idea of reward, of, of enjoying your fruit, of your labor in the kingdom. There is a bountiful harvest guaranteed. So how do you become a cheerful giver? By seeing the end result of your giving. And that is see the bountiful harvest that's coming from God. God is going to bless this in the long run for eternity. There will be a response from God of blessing on your giving. And so really at any point in your life when you're giving, you're making an investment in the eternal kingdom. Now if you explicitly think about that investment being now, then really you're just using biblical terms to excuse storing up treasure on earth instead of storing up treasure in heaven. But let's instead put our focus on what's eternal and let's invest in what's Greater. That's what Paul's saying here. You want to reap bountifully. Ultimately, Paul's very clear on his doctrine of the resurrection. That's future. But he makes a very significant shift in his argument in verse 8. Let's just re-read verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, he just pulled one over on us. All right? If you stop the sentence in the wrong place, you can totally misread this. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that it, in all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound. But if you put the period right there. So, in other words, if you give, God's able to make you abound in all things, at all times, with all sufficiency. Well, we can fill that in real easily. That's all the money we could ask for, all the career success we could ask for, all the immediate reaping we could ask for. That's what we abound in. But that's not what we abound in in the verse. How's that verse in? We abound in what? Every good work. <laughs> so your giving produces a harvest of you doing good works. That's the bountiful harvest in the immediate that you get to reap. That's a very different story than if I give $100, I could probably expect 1000 in return. Or I could give $100 and I could expect more good works in my life in the future. 
That's the logic the Apostle Paul is using. And so how do we become a cheerful giver? It's because we recognize that that giving, we're going to experience God work more powerfully in us. God's going to work more powerfully in you through the giving. See, it's very clear that that's what he's saying here. Verse 9, he quotes Psalm 112. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, you read that, you might immediately think that's talking about God. Go back and read the psalm. The psalm is not talking about God. The psalm is talking about a human, a normal person. This normal person has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. This is the righteous man in the Old Testament. He is giving good things to the people, and therefore his righteousness endures forever. This is a very good prosperity psalm. If you want to argue for the prosperity gospel in the Old Testament, Psalm 112 is it. Go look for it. You, you see this direct connection between pouring out wealth, pouring out your goodness into the world, and receiving this harvest. And Paul is using that to argue this, that he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, be careful not to misread that. He's not saying he's going to increase the harvest of your positive good works and your ledger that make you look like a good person. That's not the kind of righteousness we're talking about. You never reach a point where your righteousness is positive relative to your sin. That's not on the table for you. What's going on here is Paul's saying, and he's quoting the Old Testament to make his argument, is that you sowing the seed of giving, and this we're talking resources, material wealth, your stuff, that's the context in the psalm. That's the context in 2 Corinthians. You give in this way, God will produce a work in you that produces more outward righteousness. Not saving righteousness, but outward, practical. It changes your heart. Think about it. We just got given a formula. Not a formula for getting more material blessing, but a formula for producing more sanctification. You give to produce sanctification in your heart. Now just imagine, if you ever get excited that you got to sanctify it a little bit more? We only like sanctification after the fact. You know what I'm talking about? When you pray for patience. Anybody ever prayed for patience? Anybody ever done it twice? <laughs> All right. <laughs> because we don't enjoy that experience, right? God is working in us. Sanctification doesn't feel good immediately. But when you come out on the other side, and you can look back over the trajectory of the last five or six, ten years and see that God has really changed me. He's done a work in me. He has really molded my heart and shaped my character to be a different kind of person. That's exciting to see God's work like that. But one of the things that can fuel you in being a generous giver is knowing that giving has a direct correlation to your growth and sanctification. This is promised in God's word, that you're sowing, by giving your resources, you're sowing an attitude in your heart of sacrifice, an attitude of submission, an attitude of prioritizing the kingdom, and that's going to grow into a fruit that is a more righteous, more Christ-like maturity in your person. And so you can give cheerfully because you know, and I'm, I'm handing this over because I'm going to grow in the Lord. This is my act of devotion. You know, we read our Bible, we pray, we 
meditate on scripture. We take the Lord's Supper. We spend time in community. All of these things help grow us in Christ. And this is literally given to us as a means of growth. You can grow in Christ by giving the money. You can grow in Christ by giving that stuff. You can grow in Christ through generosity. If you connect those dots in your mind, it's a lot easier to write the check. It's a lot easier to hand it over and say, yeah, I want to grow with the Lord. Here, take it. I want to sow that seed of submission to Christ by handing this over. There's a direct connection between your pocketbook and your heart. And really what you're doing is you're destroying an idol. Every time you give, rather than sacrifice to the idol, you sacrifice to the Lord. It's changing who you are. But furthermore, it goes beyond that, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So he restates his argument and then gives a further call. So you, you give in generosity, it makes you more generous, and this produces thanksgiving to God. Among whom? Well, these people were serving. So for the ministry of this service, that is the offering he's collecting the thanks of Jerusalem, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it's not just meeting a physical need, though it is, that's one of the reasons he's doing it, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. What happens when these people get that income? They receive this offering from Paul, which came from the churches and the Gentile regions. They receive this offering. Who do they thank? Not Paul, right? Where's the thanksgiving go? The Lord. Well, this is exactly the formula Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let your light shine before others in such a way that they see your good works and they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you get to increase not only the fruitfulness of ministry, but even the very glory of God is proclaimed because of the giving that you make. So, Let's fill in the next two blanks as we move towards the end. By fueling fruitful ministry. So do you think it delighted Paul's heart to know that the work he was doing was going to make a tangible impact on the kingdom of God? I can't imagine knowing with such certainty that the Apostle Paul had that he was going to make an impact on the kingdom of God. The reality is, in all of our giving, all of our service, all of these things we do in the kingdom of God, this is all having a tangible impact on someone else's life, all to the glory of God. So we fuel, fuel fruitful ministry and then by participating in God's glory. We magnify the glory of God in all of these things as we do this. So I want to close, close with this idea. Um, have you ever heard of opportunity cost? So opportunity cost is the finance principle. It's like when you spend your money on one thing, what have you lost or what does it cost you because you didn't spend that money on something else? So you could have been saving this up in retirement. And so because you didn't, this thing you spent $100 a month on actually cost you like $2 million because of the opportunity that you gave up to do it. That's called opportunity cost. So think about it more like this. Let's call it kingdom opportunity cost. What joy, what excitement, what delight in participating in God's kingdom are you giving up because you're enjoying some lesser thing in life? The present. 
Ask yourself, what opportunity cost, what kingdom opportunity cost am I giving up? Now, I want you to see how Paul ends this. Where do we finish verse 12, verse 13? By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession to the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God giving to you. So he's really excited about this. And verse 15 is where it all comes together. What's Paul say? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Wait a minute. Saul Thomas has been talking about the offering he's collecting to give to the saints. But that's not the gift he's excited about. What's the gift he's excited about? That they get to participate in this redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I think this is an awesome segue. Because what we do when we take the Lord's Supper together is we celebrate Christ gave his life do this on a regular basis to remind our hearts that we are forgiven, to remind our hearts that we are loved, to remind our hearts that we are adopted into the family members of the new covenant, that we are his children, brother of Christ, adopted into that family. So as we do this together, I want to read the institution words that come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gives us this warning. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So here's what I want us to spend a few moments doing is examining our hearts. As always, if you look for sin in your heart, you will find it. It's there. You brought it with you. You've probably sinned in the last 30 minutes. There's sin in our hearts. We fall short in more ways than we can fathom. But what we're looking for is not purity. We're not just looking for sin or the absence of sin in our hearts. What we're looking for is our attitude of repentance before the Lord. An attitude of submission to the Lord. We are celebrating that Christ gave his all. That he shed his blood. That he broke his body on our behalf so that we could be redeemed, purchased, made part of his family, and the only step we play in that process is faith, justification by faith alone. So another way of saying it is not we're looking for repentance, we're looking for dependence. We're looking for faith. We're looking for trust in the Lord. And let's examine our hearts for a few moments silently. Let's just pray individually, examining our hearts, repenting of sin, confessing sin, and giving our all. Christ. So let's spend a few moments doing that as they continue to pass out the elements.